0: In just a few days, we're gonna see the first images that came from the James Webb Space Telescope. Let's talk
1: to somebody that's worked to make these beautiful images come to life. The images are spectacular. They're gonna blow people away. There's sort of like a universal appeal to these images. They touch on a collective need or want to understand the deeper questions of the universe that we all have in ways that connect us all together hi i'm
0: jim green and this is gravity assist nasa's interplanetary talk show we're going to explore the inside workings of nasa and meet fascinating people who make space missions happen i'm here with joseph de pasquale And he is the senior data image developer in the Office of Public Outreach at the Space Telescope Science Institute in Baltimore, Maryland. Joe has worked on bringing spectacular space images to life from missions like Hubble and Chandra. But now he's working with the James Webb Space Telescope Group, which will be unveiling its first images on July 12th. So welcome, Joe, to Gravity Assist. Hi Jim, thanks for having me. I'm really happy to be here. Well, you know, a lot of people probably don't realize that when we look at a Hubble image, that it's not exactly what the spacecraft sees. You know, someone such as you has to serve as that intermediate process between the data and the final image and make decisions on how to make that image pop. So
1: how would you describe what you do? Well, like you said, Jim, it's. the telescope is not really a point and shoot camera. So it's not like we can just take a picture and there we have it, right? It's a scientific instrument. So it's designed first and foremost to produce scientific results. It just so happens with Hubble and with Webb that these instruments are exquisitely sensitive and they create beautiful images of the universe, but it's scientific data first. So we have to take that data and convert it into an image. And that's, that's where I come in uh, myself and my colleague, Elisa Pagan.
0: All right. Well, what kind of training do you have uh, that really has enabled you to take these images and make them shine?
1: Yeah, that's an interesting question. My, my career path has kind of meandered through my life, but I started out with a degree in astronomy and astrophysics, and I worked for eight years for the Chandra mission as a, a data analyst in calibration for the telescope, one of its detectors. And during that time, I learned a lot about how the images on Chandra were made and how to create color images from the data. And it was sort of a natural transition from that position into public outreach for Chandra, creating like press imagery from the data. So my background was really in astronomy, but also I've had a lot of interest in like arts, uh, painting, you know, uh, photography, color theory, and like all of these interests sort of come together to be able to allow me to you know, have the skill set needed to, to make these images.
0: Yeah, I think you point out a really important aspect about it, and that is having that science background already gives you the intuition as to what that image is all about. As you say, you paint. Right. So in addition to uh, having that science background, you have that artistic flair. Now, I don't have much of an artistic flair, (laughs) so it takes some really unique individuals to do that. Uh, But... uh, that science background is really key, I think. So when you get that image from a spacecraft, what does it look like? Is it just a bunch of ones and zeros and how do you turn them into the beautiful things they are?
1: (laughs) Yeah, so the data do come down in a digital format of ones and zeros. Um, Although the raw data that we get from the archive is, you know, it's a black and white image, essentially. Um, It's basically just the brightness levels of the pixels that the detector saw. So it was sitting in one spot, looking at some object in space, collecting light. And uh, the image that we get is sort of that raw image from the detector. And it needs a lot of work to be able to even see what's in the image. Um, We have to do something called stretch the data. And that is to take the pixel values and sort of reposition them, basically, so that you can see all the detail that's there. If you don't do that, it basically looks like a black image with some white specks in it because there's such a huge dynamic range. And what I mean by dynamic range is just the darkest darks and the brightest whites in the image. Um, The whites are super bright and they stand out as these white specks, but all of the other material and interesting stuff is sort of buried in the dark regions of the image and you have to bring it out without oversaturating it. Got it. So if you bring everything up equally, then you're you're bringing up all that dark information, but you're also oversaturating the bright. And so there's a compression that happens it allows you to retain the information that's bright, but also bring up the dark parts of the image.
0: Well, you know, our eye has, is so fantastic a, a tool for us to see a very broad range of wavelengths and, and our eye is sensitive more in certain colors than in others. Does that affect how you actually end up picking the colors
1: and repainting the image? Yeah, that's very true. So our eyes, you know, they have uh, cone cells that are sensitive to colors of light and nominally red, green, and blue. And so we use that that sort of biology of the eye as a framework within which to apply color to the images. Uh, when we're working with Hubble and Webb or even Chandra, even wavelengths that are beyond what we can see with our eyes, we use a, a technique called chromatic ordering to the data. And what that means is that for Hubble, it looks in very specific wavelength ranges. So we have these filters that filter out light And allow you to see like if you were taking an image in red light the filter filters out everything but red and allows you to see an image in just red light of course it comes down to us black and white and we have to later apply that color red to it Um, but our color images are made up this way by taking red filters and coloring them red green to green and blue to blue when you move away from red green and blue like visually uh, we use this same approach so for example with web if we take short wavelength infrared light and assign blue to that. And then as you move into the longer wavelengths, you go from blue to green to red. That's what I mean by chromatic ordering.
0: Yeah. So you you actually use as your color palette the spectrum of light as we break it up in a prism. So it has that specific ordering associated with it.
1: Yeah, that's right. The red, green and blue primary colors, you know, within those, you can have all the colors of the rainbow.
0: Yeah, to me, that's really important to understand. So it's not like, oh, I'm going to take
1: this and make it purple. And then right next to that, we're going to make this yellow. That's right. Yeah, you're you're absolutely right that we're not going in there and applying like painting color onto the image. We are respecting the data from beginning to end. And we're allowing the data to show through with color. So if you look at a galaxy, for example, in optical light, the, the regions of the galaxy where there's active star formation we expect those to be sort of glowing in hydrogen, which would be red. And so we know that when we use that red filter and it's colored red, you apply red, green and blue together, you're going to see like a highlight in red where there are star forming regions. So there's actually a lot of science that you can learn just by looking at the color image. So Joe,
0: after you get that initial image that you feel just is right and it has the the look and feel about it that really makes the observations and the data pop, Is there an interaction period with the scientists about that? And
1: do you then go back and modify that? Uh, Yeah, Jim, it's very much an iterative process, but I do feel like over the years, I've sort of honed my intuition into what looks good. So, you know, the initial starting point is always like the springboard for the discussion, but we do have a lot of back and forth with the scientists that we work with on these images, uh, specifically to help really bring out the details that they wanna specifically bring out Uh, for their particular results, their science results. uh, You know, that may require a little extra work here or there just to get that thing to pop a little more.
0: Well, what's been some of your favorite
1: images to work on from Hubble? So every year we do an anniversary image, right? Where we pick an object that we know is going to be pretty spectacular when viewed with Hubble. And we'll do an anniversary image release to celebrate the launch of Hubble. Cool. And for the 28th anniversary, we looked at the Lagoon Nebula, and produce this like beautiful multicolor image uh, in narrow band wavelengths. So what I was saying before about red, green, and blue, those are sort of the wide bands. Uh, Hubble has filters that look in like wide swaths of the spectrum, but it also has these filters that are tuned to very specific wavelengths and very narrow uh, regions within those wavelengths. And so that image is actually a combination of three narrow band wavelengths in red, green, and blue that just produced this amazingly detailed tapestry of gas and dust and star formation.
0: Well, you've also worked on Chandra. That's right. And although Hubble does observe in, as you say, the visible light, in the light that we can see, and a little bit into the infrared in the light we can't see, Chandra, we can't see any of that data from the ground and from our eye. So what do you do with that data? And, And tell us about your favorite image
1: yeah, so that's a really interesting challenge when you're talking about x-ray light because it is beyond human vision, right? Uh, so we like to, in the you know imaging community in astrophotography, like to refer to this process as representative color instead of what it used to be called or still you know many people call false color images. I dislike the term false color because it has this connotation that we're faking it or it's you know, this isn't really what it looks like. The data is the data, that's that's exactly what it looks like. And we're just- Yeah, and as you
0: said, you're keeping true to that data from a scientific perspective by connecting the colors
1: in the right way right. Uh, with the wavelengths. Yeah, so, and a good example of, uh, you know, working with multi-wavelength imagery, combining Hubble and Chandra, uh, one of my favorite images that we worked on was the antennae galaxies, where we have these two uh, interacting galaxies. They're sort of playing, dancing around each other, merging together. And that image actually also included infrared data from the Spitzer Space Telescope. And in order to keep everything sort of very cleanly separated, I chose very specific colors for the different wavelengths in that image. And, you know, there's a Hubble image there of of the antennae galaxies that on its own is a beautiful, like very detailed color image. I felt a little bad about the fact that I had to reduce its color from, you know, the beautiful three color image all the way down to just one color, uh, which I colored gold in that version. And then um, I pulled the Chandra data in, in blue and the infrared in red. And although each one of those on their own, it's, it, it's kind of like missing something when you pull them all together and they each have their own color, there's actually a wealth of information that you can pull out of that that you wouldn't get from any one of them alone. So what was it like working on this web data?
0: Because it's now taking this data, it's now coming in. You're now having your hands on it. <laughs>
1: You're the one that knows what's being done, right? Yeah. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) I I can't speak in detail about it, but I can say that um, the images are spectacular. They're going to blow people away. Good. Um, Being among the first people to work on it has been such a privilege. I feel like I have to pinch myself. (laughs) Like I can't believe that I'm here at this moment in time working at Space Telescope, working on the web project, pulling together the the first data that the web has taken and turning it into these beautiful color images. Uh, it's just a highlight of my career right now. When scientists look at their archive and, the, and get the data,
0: you know how important are these beautiful images that you create to them?
1: I'd say it has grown in importance over the years. I believe that you know scientists have their own ways and preferred ways of processing the data to, to pull out the details that they want to see. But ultimately, when they want if they have uh, newsworthy results they want to present that in the best way possible. And that's where you know, the work that I do comes in, where I can take something that they may have made and you know, clean it up and turn it into something that's just a beautiful image, but also tells the story of their science and their results, as well as presenting a beautiful image.
0: Well, you know, space images are not only great for scientists, they're wonderful for the public. And,
1: and I see
0: Hubble images on all kinds of stuff. T-shirts, lunchbox, posters, yep. all kinds of other places. I mean, uh, you know, in this area, you can go to the Dulles Airport. And if you take the underground walk from parking lot one and two over to the airport, you see the beautiful wall of Hubble images. That's right. I don't know if you've done that, but, but, you know, millions of people have probably made that walk. So... What does that feel like uh, to see those images
1: that you've worked on being displayed all over the world? It, it, it feels humbling, I will say, um, to know that like, work that I have done has been seen by millions of people and is hopefully inspiring people to be like the next generation of scientists and engineers and maybe image processors. Sure. <laughs> There's sort of like a universal appeal to these images. They touch on a collective need or wants to understand the deeper questions of the universe that we all have in ways that connect us all together. You know, Carl Sagan was always a fan of saying that we are star stuff. And I always like to extend that to the fact that like, when we're observing the universe, when we're looking at these images, we are the universe thinking about itself, right? So we're all connected and this brings us all together. So Joe, do you own any clothing with the images that you've made on it? <laughs> Uh, I personally don't own any clothing with my images on it, but my wife has a dress uh, with uh, one of my images on it. Or Actually, the way it was put together, it's like sort of a mishmash of a couple different images, Uh, but something that I worked on is in there. I do have a pair of socks with uh, the web telescope on them, so I frequently wear those (laughs) just for good luck. I remember when I was in college, sitting in class, looking at, we had a poster of the Pillars of Creation image, the famous Hubble image, right? And yeah. yeah, that was like hugely inspiring for me, just sitting there wondering about like, even just how was this image made? Like, how is that actually there? How can we get a picture in such detail and clarity of this object? Uh, so that was a huge inspiration for me. And, you know, this is a bit of an aside, but when I started at Space Telescope, I actually worked with Zolt LeVey for the first year that I was here. He was the original image processor for Hubble, you know, worked on many of these images that, you know, inspired me to get into astronomy in the first place. And I got to share it off with them for a year. So that was really a special time. Yeah. Well, you're really touching
0: on the next thing I want to talk about. And that is, uh, uh, I always like to ask my guests to tell me, you know, the person, place, or event that propelled them forward to become the scientists they are today. And I call that a gravity assist.
1: Ah, So, Joe, what was your gravity assist? Ah, that's a great question. So I think... I have to go all the way back to high school and, you know, knowing that I always was interested in astronomy and space and just looking up and look at the stars and wonder what was up there. Um, But I kind of lost a little bit of that through high school. And then I saw the movie Contact uh, the summer before Ah. I started college. Right. Interesting. Uh And I I read the book, Carl Sagan's book, and Mm -hmm. it just opened my eyes to the possibility of like pursuing a career in astronomy and, and seeing what that could be like. And uh, I switched my major that summer, right before I started school, switched into astronomy and I went to Villanova University, which has a a wonderful undergraduate astronomy program. Good school. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the rest is history. That was sort of the the thing that got me going. I, I would call that my gravity assist. Yeah, 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 I would too, I would too. <laughs> well, for me in high school, I had the privilege of
0: working on a 12-inch Alvin Clark refractor Ooh. that was associated with a, a high school and it was part of what was called the Whitty Observatory. So I caught the bug like you did early on in my career and that really set the tone to, to move forward. Oh, that's great. Well, Joe, thanks so much for telling us about the process of making these fabulous images from the NASA telescopes. Thank you, Jim. Glad to talk about it anytime. (laughs) Well, join me next time as we continue our journey to look under the hood at NASA and see how we do what we do. I'm Jim Green, and this is your Gravity Assist.